You will remember that we've been considering Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, as we continue studying Colossians. And Paul has been describing his service to the gospel, uh, what it meant for him to be a servant of the gospel. And he has been explaining the first thing that he wants for the Colossians and for us to know about being a servant of the gospel. And the very first thing is that being a servant of the gospel involves suffering. He said, I now rejoice in my sufferings in your behalf, and I fill up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions in my flesh in behalf of his body, which is the church, of which I am a servant. So the first uh, the first element, the first thing involved that he wants them to know about is in being a servant of the gospel, and particularly in him being a servant of the gospel, is that it involves suffering. And more than that, we learned that even though these tribulations were very heavy and very substantial and uh, were a very terrible thing to consider one man to have endured, yet he rejoiced in these things precisely because they were part of his service to the gospel. And so we then came to this next question, which was how is it that a person's sufferings can serve the gospel? We know why he would rejoice in his sufferings, and we, uh, we understand many things about his sufferings, but how is it that they could specifically be said to serve the gospel? And he explained that it was because of the fact that by his sufferings he was filling up what was lacking of Christ's afflictions. And that's what we talked about last week, that Paul was, in his sufferings, was filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, we had several points that we had to understand in order to explain what that text meant. And the first thing that we understood was that there is a mystical unity between Christ and the church, so that uh, what we suffer, it can truly be said, He suffers. And also, that when we suffer, it can be truly said that we partake of his own afflictions. So because of this relationship, this spiritual, mystical relationship between Christ and his church, uh, it can be said that we share, in one sense, in the sufferings of one another. And furthermore, we saw that this verse taught that not only was there a mystical unity between Christ and his church so that these sufferings were shared, but also that the sufferings of Christians for the sake of the gospel continue the sufferings of Christ. In other words, Christ, you remember we learned from the grammar and the context, because he is no longer here to suffer in his own body, in his own person, he's gone, he's been raised and ascended into heaven, so uh, he's not here to suffer in the flesh anymore, but the afflictions of Christians, or Paul particularly uh, in this passage we're talking about, were in his place. He is gone, and so uh, we suffer the continuation of his earthly sufferings. And the third important thing was that we learned was that uh, there is a sense in which there is a quota of suffering that is to be experienced until the return of Christ. There's a certain amount of trial and tribulation that the church must undergo, just as there's a number of the elect that will be saved, just as there is an amount of time until the end. So there is a certain uh, quantifiable amount of suffering that the church must undergo uh, and experience until the return of Christ. And so, 
insofar as Christ is not here to personally experience that, and insofar as it's a continuation of his sufferings, then it was right to say, as Paul said, that there was a kind of lack, a kind of shortcoming in Christ's sufferings, because they hadn't all been experienced by him as yet, and could only be experienced by the suffering of his disciples. And so what was left from now, or from Paul, from the, from the departure of Jesus until the end of time, what was left of those sufferings was a kind of lack that had to be filled up. Now, we come to what is really the final uh, significant point of these verses that we will talk about, and that is this question. Uh, we've, we've seen that Paul suffered, we've seen uh, how these sufferings related to the afflictions of Christ, We've seen how these sufferings serve the gospel, broadly speaking. But there is this one final question about what he says here, and that is, what does it mean when Paul says that his sufferings were in behalf of the church, or for the sake of the church? He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings in your behalf. It's the first time he says it, and he goes on, I fill up the lack of Christ's afflictions in the flesh, in my flesh, in behalf of his body, which is the church, of which I became a servant according to the stewardship of God given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So he very clearly says that these sufferings, which were filling up the lack of Christ's afflictions, were, were in behalf of the people of God. In, in fact, he says, he says it two ways. He says, first of all, they were in behalf of the Colossians. That's what he says in the beginning of verse 24, my sufferings in your behalf, specifically speaking of the Colossians, my sufferings in your behalf. But then he goes on in the second part of that verse and makes it clear that, that his sufferings that were filling up the, the lack of Christ's afflictions were not merely for the Colossians or for the Galatians or for the Ephesians. It was for the entire church, the universal church. He says, I fill up the lack of Christ's afflictions in my flesh in behalf of his body, in behalf of his body, which is the church. So Paul wasn't merely suffering for the sake of or in behalf of the Colossians. He was suffering for the sake of or in behalf of the entire church of Jesus Christ. But what does this mean? What does it mean to say that Paul was suffering in behalf of the church or that Paul was suffering for the sake of the church? It would be very easy if we could translate it, Paul was suffering on account of the church. Uh, but unfortunately, it doesn't translate that way. Like it doesn't work that way. Um, so what does it mean? Well, there's one answer that we need to take a look at um, before, it's a wrong answer. So we're going to start with the wrong answer, then we're going to come to the right answer, what I think is the right answer. The wrong answer we want to take a look at is the Roman Catholic answer, because it's very important, because this is, remember we talked about last week how they have texts, after the fact, mostly speaking, after they have a doctrine, then they go back and look for a text, uh, and so they'll take little texts out of context and they'll try to establish some heretical doctrine with it. And this is, this is the principal text that they use to teach the following doctrine. What the Roman Catholic Church says is this. They say that uh, you can be so good or some people are so good that they're overflowing with goodness. They, they've got so much that, that they don't need it just for themselves. They've got extra goodness. They call it merit. In other words, uh, Paul, they would say, has done so many good works 
that he's covered himself and he's got extra. And this is what they call works of supererogation. And what happens, they say, when you have this extra from people like Paul or Peter, they were so good they, that they just had all this extra, to, they didn't need to cover their own sins anymore, they, they, and they, that was taken care of. You have all these extra good works go into a kind of, a, what they call the treasury of the saints. So, up is, you know, it's kind of like at a banking institution. Uh, if you If you have... Uh, if you have checks that you've written and you go in and make a deposit and there's more in your deposit than in the checks that you've written, then you have extra money and that goes into the bank, right? And it sits in there, it's extra and you can draw on it. So what they say is that, well, you have these Christians that are so good that they have extra good works and these go into this treasury. Now, what you can do with this treasury, they say, or actually what they say they can do, is that the church, and by that they mean specifically only the Roman Catholic Church, because that in their mind is the true church, the Roman Catholic Church has access to this treasury of grace, all right, that, is, that was built up by the merit of the saints. And official officers of the church, meaning priests who are in the apostolic succession and have the, the, uh, uh, the ordination of the Pope, they can access this treasury and they can make a withdrawal for you. So what happens is when you go to the Roman Catholic Church and uh, they have seven sacraments, let's see, they have baptism, they have uh, confirmation, uh, they have confession, uh, they have the holy orders, that's when you become a priest or a nun, uh, they have marriage, they have the last rites, uh, which happens when you die and they anoint you, and I'm missing number seven. Penance, that's right. Confession and penance. So in each one of these things, what happens is the church, you go in, let's say you've committed sin, okay? And you go into your priest and you say, I've committed sin, Father, what, I'm going to confess this to you. And the priest says, well, I, I, am gonna, I have the power to absolve and forgive you of this sin. How does he do that? He does that because he has access to this extra treasury of grace, you see, and they can administer it to you. And so what the Roman Catholics teach is that Paul here is saying, uh, quite simply, that, uh, that he participated in the atoning work of Christ by having extra grace. His sufferings were more than needed to cover for, any, for his own sin, and so it went into the extra, and the church can get to it and give it to you to forgive you of your sins. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches in a nutshell. Now, of course, there are so many problems with that doctrine, you hardly know where to start. I mean, because it assumes the whole Roman Catholic scheme and everything. But if we, if we just grant them everything for the sake of argument, except for one thing, and that'll take the whole thing down, and that is that the sufferings of Christians, according to the Scriptures, do not and cannot atone for sin. Your sufferings and my sufferings cannot uh, provide a basis for God to pardon sin. Now, this idea is certainly contrary to the teachings of Paul in this very epistle, this thing the Roman Catholics think. For example... What has he been saying? What has he been doing? He's been exalting the preeminence of Christ. Chapter 1 and verse 14, he says, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't say Christ plus my sufferings. It says this is Christ. He's the all in all. 
He's the preeminent one. In him we have redemption. Uh, chapter, uh, verse uh, 20, he says, Having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things to himself. He says in verse 21-22, He's now reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death. Always Jesus. And then we're going to find in chapter 2, down in verses 10 through 15, that he's going to go back to this doctrine of the preeminence of Christ. And he's going to say, Christ, in Christ you're complete. In Christ you're circumcised. In Christ you're raised. In Christ you're quickened. And, and all your trespasses are forgiven. Because it was through his sacrifice that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So it's this whole concept of forgiveness coming through the suffering of, of, of the saints is contrary to the very things that Paul has been teaching in this letter. But it's not only contrary to this uh, one letter, it's contrary to all of Paul's letters. And, and I could go to every single letter of Paul in the New Testament and show you how that he never teaches that his sufferings or any other Christian's sufferings do anything, but only Jesus' sufferings. But just for, for chapters that you might want to read, you should consider especially Galatians chapter 3, which explains very specifically how that we are saved by faith and that the basis of our forgiveness is the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, also, Ephesians chapter 2 couldn't ask for a clearer chapter. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should both boast. Now, on what basis are we saved by this faith? Faith. He explains very specifically, in Jesus Christ, you who sometimes were far off are now made near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace who's made both one. He is the one who abolished in, the, in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. He is the one who's reconciling both unto God in one body by the cross. Through him we, have both, we, have, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. You see, uh, all over the place, and then uh, a very powerful chapter, Romans chapter 5, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, by Him we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. By Jesus we have access to this grace. When we were yet without strength in due time, Christ plus Paul died for the ungodly? No, Christ died for the ungodly. He commends His love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. It just goes on and on and on and on. And to try to take this one verse and turn it against everything that Paul has taught about Jesus Christ and about redemption, about reconciliation, is simply uh, a terrible perversion of the scriptures. But it's not merely contrary to Paul's teaching, it's contrary to the teaching of Peter. 1 Peter 1.19 You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. It's contrary to what the Apostle John taught. Not just Peter and not just Paul. 1 John 2. My little children, these things I write to you that you sin not. And if any man sin, come to me and I'll absolve you through the treasury of the saints. Is that what he says? No. He says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. 
Jude, the, the, the Jude, the author of the uh, book of Jude, chapter uh, verse twenty-one. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. The entire book of Hebrews is devoted unto proving that 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 men couldn't do anything to help us with our sin problem. Priests and prophets, it didn't matter. And animal sacrifices, only Jesus Christ, because He was the mediator of the new covenant. Alright? It's contrary to the, the teaching of all of the Old Testament. Where in the world do we find that any of the prophets or priests could add their own sufferings or sacrifices to those appointed by God? It, it simply didn't matter. That, that something should, that the priests should suffer for the people, or that the prophets should suffer for the people in the Old Testament. It's not there. Only the one who was to come, the Messiah of Israel, could suffer as the high priest and the sacrifice in the fulfillment of the whole ceremonial system. So, this entire Roman Catholic doctrine is simply false. It's a terrible, blasphemous, wicked heresy. And and the only reason it exists is to prop up their system by which they keep people's consciences in bondage. Because if you believe that, that the Roman Catholic Church controls the keys to the kingdom and that only they can let you into heaven, then that organization has great power over you like any other cult. So what does it mean then? If it doesn't mean that Paul is is somehow adding to the sufferings of Christ, that he's, that he's atoning for sin. What does it mean that he's in behalf of or for the sake of the church is suffering? <clears throat> well, the first thing uh, that we have to look at is the context. Now remember that Paul is describing here his service to the gospel. He says, I am a servant of the gospel and I am a servant of the church of Jesus Christ, he says, verse 25. Actually, the end of verse 24, of which I became a servant. He it twice, once related to the gospel, once related to the body of Christ, which is the church. That's what this is all about. The suffering is about his service to the gospel. Now, we can start by saying this. Paul's obligation, Paul's call, was what? It was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But it wasn't just that. It was, it was phrased in a slightly more expanded thing. This is what the Lord says to Ananias when he tells him to go to Saul. He says, he says, go your way. This Paul is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Do you see? Here it is again. Wrapped right together in, Paul, in the very call that Paul received to the apostleship. He says he's, going, he's a chosen vessel to bear my name, for I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name. Paul's obligation was to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to establish the Gentile churches in the faith of Jesus Christ. But by the appointment of God... Doing this would bring upon him great personal suffering. But he gladly underwent these sufferings. He rejoiced in them in order to fulfill this mission, which was the blessing of the Gentiles with the gospel of Christ. Incidentally, that verse I was citing was Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. 
when Ananias uh, receives word from the Lord about Saul's call to the apostleship. Along this lines, along this idea that we're considering about this relationship in Paul between his apostleship and his suffering, uh, consider also 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-10. through 10. He says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What does Paul do here? Well, first of all, he identifies his gospel. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was raised from the dead. That's just obviously a summary of his gospel, though the resurrection was the thing that was really getting him in trouble. Uh, He identifies that he's got a gospel. It's a gospel he's received from God. And then he records in verse 9 that it's because of that gospel that he's suffering. If it weren't for this gospel, Paul wouldn't be suffering. But because of his gospel, he's suffering. So what does he say? He says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they might also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He's willing to endure such suffering so that this gospel will accomplish its purposes. Preaching, we know, is necessary to the salvation of the elect, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you have to get the word of God before you can believe the word of God and be saved. If you don't get the word of God, you can't believe the word of God, and so you can't be saved. How shall they believe, says in the book of Romans. So... Preaching is necessary to the salvation of the elect. But what Paul says here is that suffering inevitably follows the preaching of the truth. If you preach the truth of Jesus Christ, you will suffer. So if there's no suffering, there's no preaching. And if there's no preaching, there's no salvation. So if we cut out the middle, it's right to say that if there's no suffering, there's no salvation. Because suffering is intimately inevitably connected to this preaching of the gospel. I suffer trouble as an evildoer even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. So in one sense, as we begin to see, Paul's sufferings are for the sake of the elect in the sense that they may hear the word. Before we go on with this, Let's consider also another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the one that we read this morning, our New Testament reading. It's an important passage. It has a lot to say about this subject. Now what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, all this is about the defense of his ministry, really almost from here to the end of the book. Um, And in the first six verses, Paul explains again his service to the gospel, that he is a servant of the gospel as regards the message how and their manner of delivering it we've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty we don't walk in craftiness we don't handle the word of god deceitfully we manifest the truth we commend ourselves to every man's conscience if our gospel's not hidden it's only hidden to people that are lost he says because the god of the gods of this world have blinded their mind he says we're not preaching ourselves we're preaching jesus christ the lord and ourselves your servants for jesus sake You see, he's explaining the gospel message that he preaches. It's not himself, it's not to glorify himself, it's not to raise himself up, it's not crafty, it's not deceitful, it's not hidden, it's just the simple truth of Jesus Christ. 
But he goes on. And once again, we have this connection. The preaching of the gospel, the suffering on account of the preaching of the gospel. Only here we get some more reasons why it is that Paul is suffering for preaching the gospel. These are very interesting. He says in verse 7, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What does he mean by that, we have this in earthen vessels? Earthen vessel is something that's breakable, it's weak. He's talking about himself. He's feeble, he's weak, he's, 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 he's not an impressive man, he's poor. What, what, why? Why would God make his preachers to be someone who was poor and feeble and weak and not great in speech? Why did he do that with Paul? Because it showed that the excellency of the power was from God only. God's power was displayed in a way that it could not have been displayed if Paul had been a great one. The excellency of the power is seen to be from God alone. He says, we're troubled on every side, but we're not distressed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're cast down, but we're not destroyed. Always bearing about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. You see, he says that God, by providential... What is he doing? God is allowing them to fall into all of these desperate circumstances. We're, we're troubled on every side. We're perplexed. We're persecuted. We're cast down. We're bearing about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. This is terrible persecution. Why is God allowing them to suffer this way? Why is it that these ministers of the gospel must suffer this way for this service to the gospel? He says... Because the life of Jesus, the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body by his preserving them. He shows, God shows, that this Jesus whom Paul preaches is not a dead Jesus, but a living Jesus. He's God Almighty by these miraculous deliverances, by the fact that they would be subjected to these things and then, and then, and then rejoice. They're troubled, but they're not distressed. They're perplexed, but they're not in despair. They're persecuted, but they're not forsaken. They're cast down, but they're not destroyed. What does he say in Philippians? He says that... that that because they are in nothing terrified by their adversaries, it is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. They're manifesting a living Jesus by his, by his allowing them to suffer. He goes on, For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. It's more of what we just considered. So then death works in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken, we also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Their dying leads to life for the elect. This entire passage contrasts what was suffered by the apostles and the other ministers versus the spiritual life bestowed on those who would hear and believe. It's a very dramatic contrast. They are the ministers of life, but they suffer death. They're the ministers of life. They give life to men through the preaching of the gospel, but they themselves suffer death always. It's this great paradox continuing. He started it out with the paradox of power through weakness. God's power shown through weakness. See, we say, well, that's strange. We would think God's power would be shown by power. 
No, they say, God's power is shown through the weakness of His servants. It's a paradox. Life is evidence through death that Jesus is a living one is evidence through the always dying of His servants. It's a paradox. And now, life is given through death. The ministers of life are always suffering and dying. And then finally, he finishes, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. You see, it causes the greater uh, glory of God by greater thanksgiving. The more suffering there was, the more deliverance there was. And the more thanksgiving there was on account of the greater deliverance. And the greater thanksgiving there was, the greater glory it was to God. Because when God is praised, that increases His glory as it's manifested in the world. And as God has given thanksgiving, it increases His glory as it's manifested in the world. And also, the greater the ministry, the greater the suffering. And the greater number of the converted and the greater the thanksgiving. But at the end of the day, he says, all these things are for your sakes. All these things are for your sakes. And so we don't faint, but our, though our outward man perishes, our inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. All these things are for your sakes. For your sakes, our bearing about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, it's for your sake. Are we which live always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake? It's for your sake. Death working in us is for life in you, he says. It's for your sake that we are dying. Our troubling on every side, our distresses, our, our, our persecution, our casting down. It's for your sake. Let me give you an example that I think clears this a little bit. Let's say that you were dying of a disease and you needed medication and you were very, very sick and you couldn't do anything yourself to get this medication. But uh, someone comes along and says, I'll, I'll get the medication for you. But it's a long and dangerous journey. And, 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 and to, he, on the way to get the medication, he's beset by wild animals. On the way to get the medication, people try to kill him. On the way to get the medication, he's hunted and he's chased. And, and he loses all of his own personal substance and fortune. And he suffers sickness and weakness and famine and strife. And he barely escapes with his life a number of times. But he gets the medication and he gets back to you. And he gives you the medicine and you live. The real thing that he did for you was not his sufferings, but bringing you the medication, right? But wouldn't any rational person looking at that situation, wouldn't, wouldn't it be perfectly proper to say that he suffered all of those things in your behalf? Because if he hadn't suffered those things, he couldn't have gotten the medicine for you, could he? So he suffered in your behalf. You wouldn't just be thanking him because he got the medication for you. You'd be thanking him for all that he went through that was necessary to the getting of the medication for you, for the saving of your life. And so, at our first level, at our first level, that's what we can say about Paul's sufferings being in behalf of the church of Jesus Christ. And, in fact, having established that primary sense, we're going to see it buttressed as we continue in this letter in future, uh, with his account of the stewardship 
that he was given and how that relates to this whole situation. But, but we still have a question. Because we said that this man who went and got feed the medication, strictly speaking, his sufferings didn't benefit you. Only is getting the medication, right? It's just that he had to go through the sufferings to get the medication for you. So the question then is, well, is that it? Or do these sufferings in particular and in themselves have any benefit for the church? Or uh, are they merely the price of service? Well, consider 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. And whether we be afflicted is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. So Paul explains, first of all, in the beginning of verse 4 and in verse 5, that although he suffers many afflictions and tribulations, he also is receiving comfort from the God of comfort through his Holy Spirit. He says it very specifically. He says, he says, God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. So Paul was suffering... But he was receiving a marvelous consolation from the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Why is that? It says in verse second half of verse 4 and in verse 7 that this experience enabled him to extend the same comfort to the Colossians. I'm sorry, to the Corinthians themselves when they partake of those sufferings. He says, Who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted of God. He says, I am suffering. God is comforting me. He is comforting me so that when you suffer, I can comfort you with the same comfort that he comforted me with when I was suffering. It makes perfect sense. It's very simple. And so in that respect, Paul can say, as he does in verse 6, that these sufferings and the consolations that he receives are in their behalf, because he can now extend the consolation to them, a thing which evidently he would not have been able to do if he had not both suffered and been consoled. So uh, that's a perhaps a stricter sense in which it is said that Paul is... A suffering in behalf of that his sufferings are more particularly and specifically for the sake of the church. But even this is still not quite as direct as we might be looking for, though it is closer because it specifically relates the sufferings themselves to something that will benefit them. So we still have this question. Do the sufferings of Paul specifically and in themselves benefit the church? Not merely as the price of service, not merely as something that, because he's then comforted, enables him to extend comfort, but do the sufferings themselves specifically benefit the church? Well, here's what I'm going to give you. I think the answer is yes, and here's why. It's in that verse, and I fill up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions in my flesh, uh, in behalf of his body, which is the church. Do you remember we said that 
there's a quota of suffering that just as there are this many people that are going to be the elect, there's this much time until the end, so there's this much suffering that has to be borne by the church. If there is a quota of suffering to be borne, then what is borne by another person will not be borne by me. Correct? Just as if there's a, if there's a certain amount of food on the plate and you eat three quarters of it, that means there's only a quarter left for me, right? I, there's nothing I can do. I can't get the other three-quarter. You ate it. It's gone, right? So there's, if there's a certain amount and you use up or take or, or, or deplete or, or, or fill up or whatever a certain portion of it, then that's not, there's only a certain amount left for me. And it stands to reason that the apostle who bore a very great share of this suffering, greater than perhaps any man in history, what he bore, another will not. Now let me broaden this out, and let me show you where I think this is coming from. Because remember, this is specifically part of his service to the gospel, as a servant of the gospel, as a minister of the gospel. This is actually true of every minister of the gospel who suffers for the flock. Do you remember our earlier message where we talked about what it was to be a true minister, a true shepherd, what the true shepherd was like, and he was different from the hiring, hireling, how the true shepherd would lay his life down for the sheep, how when danger came, he didn't go, let's get out of here and save our own skin, you know, and split for the hills, but he stood there and faced the danger and took the, the punishment, took the, the danger, took the affliction, took the... Uh, the pain so that his sheep would not. He suffers so that the flock might not. He takes the blow so that the sheep will be unharmed. He faces the danger so that the sheep uh, can escape. And you remember that we talked about how the wicked ones nearly almost always smite the leaders of the church. We see this in China. We see this in uh, 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 the, the former uh, Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries when they were under communism. There's too many Christians to go after, so they would just take the leaders of the church. Well, by stepping into that leadership position, by becoming a leader in the church, by assuming that mantle, by taking that responsibility, that man now takes upon him that quota of suffering. And it can truly be said that every pastor who suffers for the gospel from the wicked ones, does so in the place of the flock and for their sake. He receives many times over his share of the persecution, doesn't he? In many, many, many cases, the pastors suffer five, ten, a hundred, a million times more than the sheep do because they are the leaders of the flock. And, and instead of it being sort of evenly dispersed throughout the flock, the pastor takes the greatest share. He receives many times over his own share that they might receive less. And isn't that suffering in behalf of the church? Very, very clearly taking their quota, taking some that would have been distributed to them in his own person, that is the call of the gospel, not only that we should suffer for the sake of the gospel, but that those who, who preach the gospel, who, who assume that pastoral relationship to the people of God, will, in a time of affliction, fill up what is lacking 
uh, of Christ's afflictions in their flesh, and it will be in behalf of the church, both for their benefit and for their uh, relief and protection. So as we continue now, um, in future weeks, we shall, continue, we shall consider Paul's stewardship of the gospel, the second element of his service to the gospel.